And the title of this message tonight is called Image of the Invisible. Image of the Invisible. This is the second part of the series, but if you have not been with us, that's fine. I'm going to catch you up, so don't worry. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 tonight. We'll read those verses, we'll pray, and uh, we'll jump right in. So let's do so. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should, should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to meet us every single Friday, Lord, whether we're expecting or whether we're about to be surprised. And we do pray, Lord, that no matter what our expectation is, that you would surprise us, you would amaze us, you would meet us in a powerful way. If there's someone here that doesn't, isn't really sure if you exist or, or not, we pray, Lord, that you would somehow, some way, show them your presence and show them your love. And for those of us that do know you, that we would go deeper and this would just whet our appetite so that we'd hunger more for righteousness and more of you, more of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's Christmas time. How many of you are ready for it to be Christmas? I feel like every year it just kind of just hits you by surprise. Well, every year when we have Christmas, most of us, have presents under the Christmas tree. And when you have this present, it's wrapped up. Usually what happens is you see under the tree and what do you do? You want to pick it up. You want to shake it. You want to like envision what's inside the wrapper. And depending on how heavy it is or what, it, what sound it makes when you shake it, you determine what's inside the box. Now you can have all kinds of great guesses, but here's the thing. Maybe your parents are uh, evil and they just hide multiple boxes inside of a box and then you just get like a note that says, you owe me your life. So it doesn't, I'm not getting you anything this Christmas. You know, maybe you're going to get something like that. Hopefully not. But uh, you're not going to know what's inside the box unless you do what? Open it up. Unless you can see it for yourself, see with your own eyes what is inside. And here's the thing. It's the same thing with correcting wrong belief. And it's the same thing with correcting a wrong course of action. Our answer is always seeing Jesus for who he is. Being able to see Jesus clearly, clearly will help us uh, correct any wrong beliefs we have about the world. Now, on hearing that, especially for the unbeliever, it sounds kind of strange. Like, how does seeing God help me to see reality? How does seeing Jesus help me to understand the world correctly? I don't see the correlation between those two things. Well, here's the thing. Paul, remember, as we talked about last week in the opening verses, 
He has this prayer, and he kind of writes the purpose. He says there's this guy, Epaphras, who started this church in Colossae, and then he traveled about 1,200 miles over to see Paul in prison. And while in prison, he's talking to him, and Paul's like, all right, I'm going to write this letter to correct the false belief that these uh, people, the Colossians, have. And one of their false beliefs was this thing called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Can you say that with me? Gnosticism. It sounds really smart, but it's really not. This is what they believed. Back then, they believed that the world was kind of created, but really it kind of is this emanation of God. In other words, it's a form of pantheism to say that everything is God. And God in his like this ginormous universe, everything is kind of a part of God. And out of this part of God, he just emanated the universe. So he didn't even really create it, but it just kind of just appeared out of who he is. So we're all this little parts of God. And then Jesus is kind of like this, this uh, manifestation of this part of God, but he's a lesser God. And so when they would look at the problem of evil in the world, they would say, well, we would think and we believe that it's our fault that we created this universe with full of sin and we're responsible for the wrongdoings that we commit. But the Gnostics believed that this was the fault of God, that God was flawed and the creation was flawed to begin with because, once again, everything is God and everything's a part of God. So instead of salvation of your sins being through believing in what Jesus did, they believed that salvation was through knowledge, hence the word Gnosis. So that word just means knowledge. And so they believed by you knowing certain truths, certain deeper truths that Jesus knew, then you would be able to escape uh, the power of not really sin, but the, whatever it is, and go to the afterlife. So they had this very strange belief. But whenever people talked about Jesus, they would say, oh yeah, Jesus, he knew these secrets, and he didn't really tell you. But let's be honest, everybody knows, like, in order to know the really deeper truths, you have to listen to us. You have to come to our schools and listen to us. And so these things, even before the times of Jesus, there's this thing called Platonism. And so the smartest people of that day in, in Greek philosophy all had these strange beliefs about how the world existed and how it came to be. However, we as Christians obviously know that not to be true today, although I'll show you there are some remnants of those beliefs for us. But the fact of the matter is, Paul, knowing that these false beliefs have crept in, because, I mean, okay, so... We don't believe that today, but let's be honest. Although philosophy might not be our God in our country, in our culture, like maybe you've heard of philosophers before, you're not really even sure what they do, but we could say that science is something that we highly regard. And I'm not saying like science as it, like true science. I'm talking about this one subset of science, you know, evolutionary biology or cosmology. There are certain belief systems that scientists have that we've elevated and says, well, whether you're a Christian, whether you're agnostic, whether you're an atheist, doesn't really matter. The point is that we've elevated science to say, well, like, if it's not verifiable, it's probably not true. If you can't verify it, you can't put it in a test tube, it probably isn't true. That's largely what our culture believes, okay? So we can understand whether you believe that or not, that that's kind of what they believed about these philosophers that had these wrong beliefs, that the smartest people of their day, the people that were looked up to, were these people called the Gnostics, these philosophers that they'd spend all their time believing in certain truths. And so if you've ever been around a really smart person, sometimes they'll say, like, eh, it's too hard to explain. 
and you're like, oh, I wish I could understand, you know? And so that's kind of what it was, is like, yeah, I guess you're just not one of us. You just can't understand these deeper truths. And then people would kind of feel left out. And so they would always go to these schools and they're like, well, how do I mix in? How do I under, understand Christianity and what Jesus has taught with popular belief, what the culture believes? And they didn't know how to reconcile both. But this is why Paul said to the Corinthians, he said this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of this message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. So knowledge, the whole thing. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what he says here is, isn't it funny that the culture says in order to obtain salvation, you have to know things and you have to be one of these scholars. But in reality, what Jesus did is he, he went to the poor, he went to the peasants, he went to the shepherds who were some of the most lowly, disregarded people groups of the day and says, I'm going to reach them. It doesn't matter whether you're smart, whether you're dumb, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be a child. And that's why he said, remember, he said, you need to become like a child to enter the kingdom of God. Now that's a complete countercultural statement, what Jesus made. And what he's saying is salvation is accessible to all people. And it's not based on what you do and it's not based on what you know. It's based on who you put your trust in. Now, going back to kind of like what we talk about cosmology, because this is kind of like what he's saying in verse 15. It says, he, Jesus, so right here in this passage is a kind of like a poem that Paul writes. He just inserts it like this doctrinal statement and says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he makes this completely controversial statement to that day, saying that Jesus is the revelation of God. And he goes on to say that he's the one who created all things, and all things are created through him and for him. And so these things are completely countercultural, like I said, to the Gnostics. So that being said, for us today, looking at cosmology, the study of the universe, looking at the study of science, many people might say, especially atheists, that what we have learned in science leaves no room for God. We have the Big Bang Theory, and you can trace back in history, all, all the way back to the very initial moments when the universe began, and there's no signs of God. The whole thing happens by itself. So why do we have to believe in God if it seems like we can explain everything that we see? But that's the problem, because we're only basing it on things that we can see. And this is why Jesus, in this passage, created things both visible and invisible. Because you see, a lot of the questions left unsolved are the things that you can't see. For instance, science is only equipped to answer questions when it deals with material objects, things that are measurable, things that we can look back in history and we can kind of see this is where uh, the universe left a trace. But it can't answer questions like, why is there something here rather than nothing? Why is there a universe rather than no universe at all? Science can't answer that why question. It can just tell you what happened. So 
it can tell you that the Big Bang happened, but it can't tell you why it happened. Why is it that initially this universe kind of just popped into existence out of nothing and by nothing? And that's a question that scientists aren't equipped to solve because they're not philosophers. And philosophers ask those kinds of questions as many did in times past. <coughs> so, that being said, the first thing we can learn tonight is that Jesus is the only revelation of God. Jesus is the only revelation of God. And I'll explain how that links to the last statement. Because here the Bible says that Jesus is the one who created the universe. And he is the one who reveals what God is like. When the Gnostics, remember, the Gnostics said, like, you can't know God. I mean, like, unless you have this certain set of scholars and you know these certain truths, it's impossible to know this vast universe. And isn't that what agnostics say today? Agnostic, and so the difference, if you don't know, an atheist is a person who says there is no God. Obviously, a Christian says there is a God or a, a theist believes that there is a God. But an agnostic says, I don't know if there is a God. So an agnostic might say things like, well, I don't think that anyone can ever know. I mean, like, if you look out into the, the sky, the universe, how in the world would you ever be able to tell whether or not God exists? Right? Isn't that a fundamental question we all have? It's like, okay, I'm coming to this church. I'm reading the Bible, but I'm sure if I went to a Mormon service, they'd probably say things that are convincing too. They just pull out, like, you know, the Book of Mormon, talk about the golden tablets, and we all need to have our golden tablets inside of our heart, and we walk away and we go home and we're happy. Or if I went to, you know, like... Um, a meeting of Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm sure that if I went to Kingdom Hall, they would have something very convincing. So how do I know that this is true? And how do I know that this is, I mean, there's just so many different religions. So people are conflicted, right? And they ask the question, how can you claim that you have the truth? How can you say, and this is what I hear all the time when I'm talking to unbelievers, they'll say to me, how can you be so certain that Jesus is God? How can you know? Have you explored all the different religions? And you've heard my keys illustration, but I'll, I'll take it differently. What I throw back at them at that point is usually this. So this might be helpful if you ever have a conversation with, who's, with someone who doesn't believe in God. What I'll say is, well, would you consider it sufficient evidence if God just showed up right now and said, hey, and you asked the question and here I am. I'm God. Nice to meet you. And then he kind of demonstrated that he was God. Would that be enough evidence? Like, Psh, of course it would. Well, what if he had done that 2,000 years ago? If it was the case that he showed up on the planet and said, hey, here I am, I'm God. Remember you had the question, like you asked, you were praying in your bedroom and you're wondering like, hey, God, if you exist, can you show up? And then I'm like, I'm here. And not only am I here, but I'm going to demonstrate that I'm God because I'm going to die on a cross for your sins, although I don't have to. And then I'm going to rise from the dead three days later, which is something that nobody can do scientifically. Hum, uh, humanely, no one can do that. I'm going to do things that only God can do, perform miracles, etc. Would that be convincing? Well, if it happened 2,000 years ago, wouldn't you have wanted to know? And at that point, people are like, well, we don't really know if that really happened 2,000 years ago. And I think there's really great evidence in history, just like, hello, we can look back in history to say the Big Bang happened through science. Why can't we use historical science to go back in history and say there once was a man named Jesus who all historical scholars believe existed, and he did certain things. Even the people that didn't believe in him said, oh, he used magic to perform his miracles. 
And by his enemies claiming that he did magic, that further confirms that something happened 2,000 years ago. Okay, that being the case. So Jesus, it says here, is the image of the invisible God. Think about this. For thousands of years, the Jewish people knew who God the Father was, but there was this mysterious prophet, Messiah, Savior, that was talked about in prophecies in the Bible. Uh, with Moses, there would be a prophet. One among you would rise up. It talked about the Savior. It talked about in, in Psalm chapter 23, mysterious chapters. Like someone out of David's lineage would rise up. Even in, in the first mention of the gospel in, in Genesis chapter 1, it's talking to Mary, or not Mary. Whoa, gosh, I got that wrong. Talk to Eve. <laughs> that one day out of her seed would come the Messiah, okay? So like when Eve first falls and sins with Adam, then God talks about the day that he's going to be able to restore creation through her seed, and we knew that was going to come through Mary. So that's the correlation. I can't believe I said that. That was like the worst biblical error I've ever made. But think about that. That for thousands of years, people said, I wonder who this Messiah is. And then when Jesus shows up, he came to reveal who God is. And to the Greeks, they had this concept called the logos. There is this unifying principle of the universe. And they would look in the skies and say, yes, something happened. There is this, this power behind the universe. And what Paul is saying here to the Colossians is that that logos, that image, even though that's not the word right there, John talks about it, the logos, the word, that person is Jesus Christ. And he's not this impersonal being, this impersonal God, but he actually came down into a world and revealed who God is. There's a famous illustration, uh, a Hindu illustration of how there were different blind men that all were walking around an elephant. And some felt the tail and thought it was a snake. You know, some of them felt like the different, um, the legs, and they thought, oh, it must be a tree. They're feeling different parts of the elephant. And even though it was the same elephant, they all had different opinions on, on what it was. And this illustration is supposed to say, well, all different religions are grasping at the same God and they have, they're trying to apprehend God and they're not able to. The only difference here is that what if God chose to speak? What if the elephant chose to talk? Because the fact of the matter is even the narrator himself knows it's an elephant. And here we know that God has in history chosen to reveal himself. And he still does that today. As Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is why it is so important. Remember the Ten Commandments? You're not supposed to make any graven images of God. Why is there, why are you not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain? Why is it that you're not supposed to make an image of God? Because there's only one image that fully reveals who God is. And that image is Jesus. And what's so funny about, remember in the, the Old Testament when they're making like, like Moses is on a journey to Mount Sinai to meet with God and get the Ten Commandments. And as he kind of goes up there, everyone's like, oh man, we don't know how long he's going to be gone. Okay, well, let's make a golden calf. And, and then they cast in their gold and, and then Aaron kind of shapes this thing. And then they say, behold, look, the God who brought you out of Egypt. It's like a cow. 
like the highest conception they had of God was a cow. And that's what we do when we try to visualize who God is. Any, any image that we come up with that's not Jesus will always fall short of who God is and robs him of his glory. So that being said, this image contrasts with other religions. And that's why Jesus said himself in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. That means that what Jesus is saying is there is no other religion on the planet, no other belief system that will get you to God. And here's why. Because no other religious system can atone for the mistakes that you've made. Because every other religious system tells you that you have to atone for your own sins. You need to be a better person. Once again, in Buddhism, you have to, you have to, you know, obtain enlightenment by doing certain things. Or in Hinduism, you have to follow certain rules. In Islam, you have to have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. It's all a system of works to try to be a better person. But in Christianity, Jesus did it for us, so we don't have to. So all he says is, you can accept this free gift of eternal life if you believe in me. But that means that we have to repent of our sins and ask for forgiveness from the one that we've offended. It does us no good to apologize to the wrong God. It does us no good to, I've used this illustration before, but if I punch DJ Cash in the face and I say to Frankie, I'm sorry, it doesn't make DJ feel any better. I have to apologize to the person I've offended. And if we've offended a holy God by worshiping other things, giving worth to things that aren't God, we need to apologize to the one that we've hurt. So that being said, the second thing we see is Jesus is the cause of creation. Jesus is the cause of creation. <coughs> and so in verse 15, remember it says, he is the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things are created through him and for him. Okay. Now, we talked a lot about Gnosticism. And maybe you're just like, why did I come tonight? This is the most boring message Alan has ever taught because it's completely irrelevant. I'm not going to go to school and someone's going to be like, what do you believe in? I'm a Christian. What do you believe in? I'm a Gnostic. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. But I will say to you this. Gnosticism, remember, believes that Jesus wasn't God and that you still have to atone for your sins, right? If that's true, is there a belief system like that today? Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was actually the uh, Michael the Archangel and that through Jesus, God created the world, similar to Gnosticism, right? And that you still have to atone for your sin. It's uh, still a system of works. And so that being said, I think this is very applicable to how we address those people in our lives that are Jehovah's Witness and set them free from the burden of always trying to measure up to please God when the fact of the matter is all you have to do is believe in him. So What's interesting, though, is this very passage where Paul makes this statement saying, no, Jesus is God, and he created all things, and it's through him and for him. This very same passage is one of the passages they quote the most to say that Jesus wasn't God. He was created. And the reason they say that is, it says right there, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, let me, let me ask you this. If a Jehovah's Witness came to you and said, 
uh, don't you know Jesus is created? It says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that he is the firstborn of all creation. What, is, what else could that mean other than Jesus was created? What would you say? Would you know how to answer that? Or would you just be like, uh, you're stupid. Like, that's what we resort to usually, right? Ad hominems. That's a tax on a person instead of the argument. So here, here's the thing. And this might be helpful. Maybe you're going to be a Jehovah's Witness. Please remember this because this is going to be very important. All you have to do is think about the context. The firstborn of all creation and the very next lines is what? For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. So obviously it's not talking about that he's created if all things were created by him. So then what does it mean? Well, that term firstborn actually means in the Greek, first in rank, first in order. And the reason why we know that is in the Old Testament, remember, you, you have to be Jewish to kind of understand this, this context unless you uh, do, your, do your homework. In the Old Testament, remember, there was the rights of the firstborn, and that just meant that you were blessed. Remember Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, one of them was the firstborn, and then you have Jacob, who is blessing the secondborn, and yet later on in the Old Testament, G, uh, God talks about Ephraim as being the firstborn when he's not, when he's the secondborn. Well, why would it call him the firstborn? It's because that he has the rights of the firstborn. He's first in rank, first in order, first in priority. And so this is what it's saying is Jesus is over all. All things are created by him, and he is the one who has the authority over all things. So knowing that he is the first in rank, first in order, he is also, as we said, the cause of all creation. So let's say you're talking to somebody and they say, well, prove to me that God exists, right? What would you say? Would you know how to answer that question? If you believe that God created the universe, do you have any proof of that? That's what, those are the kinds of questions you're going to get, right? In your schools, from your teachers, from your friends, from your family members. They'll say, prove to me that God created the universe. And one thing that's helpful is something called the cosmological argument. You don't really have to know the name, but it's really simple. It's three parts. The latest version that I kind of use all the time is one by this philosopher named William Lane Craig. But it goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had a cause. So the first part, whatever begins to exist has a cause for its existence. So in other words, things don't just pop into existence out of nothing and by nothing randomly. We know that in our experience. None of you here are afraid that a pink elephant is just going to pop into existence right above you and crush you and you're all going to die. How would you live your life if you were constantly afraid that things would just pop into existence, right? That's very unscientific, right? It's very unscientific to believe that things just happen out of nothing, by nothing, for no reason. So the first premise is obviously true. Whatever begins to exist, whatever has a beginning, has a cause for its existence. It doesn't just happen for no reason. The universe had a beginning. That's part number two. We know that through science. And this is something like even people realize that for many, many years, people thought the universe was eternal. Science, contemporary science, atheists believe that the universe had always existed. 
But for philosophical reasons and scientific reasons, people know that's not true. And that's why they came up with the Big Bang Theory, to say that the universe at some point had a beginning. Something called the borguth vilenkin theorem, you don't have to know that. That's a scientific thing. We know the third law of thermodynamics. All things point to the fact that the universe had a beginning, and philosophical reasons too. In other words, um, if it was the case that the universe had always existed, that means we would never come to a day. We would never come to today because there had always been a moment before today. So if there is an infinite sequence of past events, infinite sequence of past moments, we would never come to the current moment because there would always be one more mo moment before we came to today. I might stretch your brain a little bit, but you can think about that later. Write it down and think about it. It's interesting. So obviously people know the universe had a beginning. That's scientific. Don't need to battle that, whatever. Thirdly, that means that if it's true that whatever begins to exist has a cause for its, ex for a cause for its existence, the universe had a beginning, then therefore you have no choice but to believe that the universe therefore has a cause for its existence. And they're like, well, yeah, that doesn't mean it's Jesus. That doesn't mean that he died on the cross for your sins. I know. Let me get there. We can talk about that. But what kind of cause could that be? Well, when we talk about the universe, we're talking about every bit of space, time, and matter in the universe, right? Like everything, all material things. Now, what could exist without time, space, and matter and yet create the universe or cause the universe? And it seems like there's at least only two things. If you have platonic objects, things that Platonists believe, which may or may not be true. So things like numbers, sets, colors, shapes. But obviously, like numbers don't cause things to come into existence. Shapes don't cause things to existence. The concept of a couch does not make anything happen. But an unembodied mind, it seems, could make things. God, who is beyond space, time, matter, right? Yet has enormous amounts of power. It seems possible, at least, that such a being could create the universe out of nothing and by nothing, and that's exactly what Christians have believed for thousands and thousands of years. So, if you have another explanation of something beyond time and space matter, and yet could still create the universe, we're open to hearing that. And at that point, we're like, oh yeah, I could, I could see that, but I still don't think it's Jesus. I'm like, great, you believe that God exists? That's awesome, that's a great start, and we'll get to who God is later. So. The point is that the unifying, and, and remember, back in those days, everyone believed in God. And they actually called Christians atheists because they only believed in one God. But everyone had zoos, everyone had all these different like concepts of who God was. And what Paul is saying here is, yes, and the person who caused the universe, that first unifying principle is Jesus Christ. He also says in verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Here, what he's probably addressing is possibly they were worshiping angels. Kind of sounds strange, but in those days, there were some teachings going around saying things like, well, you want to talk to God, but really like God's busy, so you need to go through a mediator like an angel, a guy that's really like Michael, like Gabriel, call him up and say like, hey man, I have this prayer request. Can you make sure it gets right to God? I mean, if angels bring messages to men, why can't angels bring messages to God? And this is how they're reasoning, right? 
And obviously, we're past that. That's stupid. That's silly. Yeah, at the same time, isn't that the same rationale for many Catholics to pray to saints? Many Catholics believe, well, you need an advocate. You need a person to talk to. God's busy, and he's doing things. And so you kind of just pray to the saint for a specific reason, specific purpose, and they make sure that God hears the prayer, and he can grant it. And what he's saying is, this is the one. This is the mediator. Jesus Christ is literally everything and all we need. And if you're wondering about the saints, by the way, you're a saint. You're a set-apart one. You're a holy one. In verse 2, this is who he writes to, right? In verse 2 of Colossians chapter 1, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ here in Colossae, you're a saint if you believe in Jesus. So what he's saying is there's no distinction there, and we can go directly to God himself. Thirdly, Jesus is the goal of creation. Jesus is the goal of creation. And we see that in verses... uh, the very end of verse 16, it says, all things were created through him, not only through him, but for him as well. The goal of, and here's, this is something that people like historically had never believed. People had sought through, you know, scripture. People have thought, uh, sought through reason and believed that maybe God had created things, but they didn't really know why it was created. But here, what he's saying is, and Jesus is the purpose of creation. Let me ask you a question, a very practical question. Why do people make art? Or maybe more specifically, why do people write songs? Right? When you write a love song and you're writing it about a particular person, why is it that you write that love song? It's because you are trying to express with words, with your abilities, with your talents, the worth of the person that you are in love with, or a particular concept that's on your mind. And this is exactly what worship is. Worship is just giving worth to something else. And I know for myself, sometimes the easiest songs to write are the songs when you have direct inspiration. When you're in love and you're writing sappy love songs, you're like 14 and you're just like, you don't show it to anyone because God forbid someone sees the lyrics and it's like, you are my everything. I would die without you. And it's just like, oh, gosh, this is so embarrassing, right? Because that person really isn't worth it. But no matter what words you express, we'll never be able to match the glory of God. And that's why we're to give him the glory. He is the purpose of not only our worship, but the entire universe is for his glory, his majesty. And this is why in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, It says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they became instead utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God. They worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Check this out. So important. Everyone look up here. We were made to worship, all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. You're made to give worth to other things. And the thing is, we were always supposed to direct our worship towards God, the one who's worthy of the worship, but we get distracted by the physical things we see around us. So you look at nature, instead of worshiping the God behind the nature, you just praise nature itself. You say, wow, what a beautiful sunset. 
right? There's something that's natural in all of us to give worth to something that we think is really worth it. When you eat a really good meal, there's something within you that has to well up and say, this is amazing. You start melting. You do all kinds of like weird things with your faces when you eat a really good meal. You have really good ramen from Ipido in New York City. Oh my gosh. You're just like, your life is changed. And you have to tell someone, this is amazing. And sometimes the best food is shared with somebody else, right? So you can experience it together. And when you're telling everybody else, you're an evangelist for food. Like, oh, you have to go there. Oh my gosh, it will change your life, right? This is the way that we talk. This is just the natural human condition to talk about things that we love. And then why are we embarrassed to do that about God? Like suddenly it's like when we talk about like giving worth to God, it's like, well, that sounds selfish of him to ask for our worship and not just our worship, but the worship of the entire universe. Um, he kind of deserves it because he kind of gave us literally everything we have and he's the creator when you create a work of art, don't you want the credit? When you write a song, shouldn't you get the glory for writing the song, right? Like, it, you should make money if you make really good music. I believe in that. That's why I pay for music. So why would we not think that about the creator of the universe if he really does exist and he really has given you everything that you literally have? We know this to be true even about our relationships with our parents. All of you know, like, you are obligated to thank your parents, eventually, hopefully down the line, like you realize, well, like, wow, my parents paid for my college tuition. And that was a lot of money. That's more money than I've ever made in my entire life up until this point. And yet they did it, even though they didn't have to. And not only that, they took care of me when I was little, when I screamed, when I was a brat. They fed up with me. They didn't say like, all right, you're a two-year-old tyrant and I've had enough you can leave and you can find your own apartment with your own little toddler friends. You know, like your parents didn't do that. Why? Because they love you. And shouldn't you respect your parents in return? Shouldn't you honor your parents in return? That's like the natural thing for all of us to do. In an infinitely more maximal way, we ought to give God the glory, the thanks, the worship. But we often give it to things that aren't God. It's like when you steal a song from a musician and you write it and then you... Like, I, I interviewed, I was supposed to interview this girl who said, like, um, oh, who wrote that song, TikTok? Kesha. So there's a girl who complained that she, like, wrote this song, and then Kesha stole a song from her and made millions and millions of dollars. I was supposed to interview her for a, a newspaper. And then I was like, I'm not calling this girl up because this is, like, not even close. This is not even close to the song that Kesha came out with. So I like listened to both songs and I was just like, I'm not even going to like call this person because this is ridiculous. But if that was the case, if she actually did, if Kesha stole the song from that girl, then she has every right to demand the royalties and the money back because she is the one who right, rightfully deserves that, you know, in a sense, glory. So Jesus is the cause and he's also the the reason, and he's also the purpose for creation and the reason why we were made. He is, in fact, the goal. Number four, and then we're going to be kind of wrapping this up. Jesus is the sustainer of creation. It says, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I love what the commentator Peter, Peter O'Brien says. He says, apart from his continuous sustaining activity, all would disintegrate. You know, a lot of people today, 
are talking about global warming. I'm not saying it exists. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying people talk about it. People talk about war. Gonna, you know, World War III could destroy the earth. Like we could completely find ourselves in a place where we're destroying the planet. People talk about the heat of the universe. Like right now, science is saying, like, if we keep on going, eventually we're just going to all melt out and there's, there's no hope or maybe a comet's going to come. And there's reasons to fear, right? And that doesn't mean we won't take care of the planet. But this is what Jesus said. He said in Mark chapter 13, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. See, because Jesus is the sustainer of all creation. He's the reason why we're still here today. In fact, Job chapter 14, verse 5, Job says, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live and we are not given a minute longer. God knows the day that you're born and he knows the day that you will die. And he's the one that has your life in his hands and he sustains you up until that point. So there's no need to fear about like, oh man, I'd, when you hear things, don't let it scare you. Doesn't mean that we're not responsible with what we have. Doesn't mean that we just treat our bodies however we want to treat it and smoke and whatever. But it means that we don't put our confidence in men. We put our confidence in God. Fifthly and finally um, is found in verse 18 through 19. Let's read him real quick. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For, the, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, in verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So now he's talking about not only is he, is he the foundation of creation, but he's also the foundation of the church and the founder, the founder of a new humanity. Once again, Peter O'Brien says this. I love this line. He says, he is the founder of a, of, of a new humanity. And this is where he talks about uh, firstborn uh, from the dead down in verse 18, that obviously, like, people have died and come back to life through miracles in the past, but he was the first of this resurrected body to come back and wouldn't die. Even Lazarus, even though he was resurrected, he once again died. But Jesus had the new body, he had the new creation, and established this new order of reconciliation. And this is where he says he is the head, not only of creation, but also of the church. And that's why we've been given this new law, this new way to be human, and this new way to see reality. And that's by this way called grace. It's, it's receiving this favor from God, even though we don't deserve it. And we've been given this new rule, and it's called love. And so John chapter 13, verse 34 says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another <coughs> as I have loved you, so that you also love one another. This is why I love. Everyone pay attention. This is where it all makes sense. Not only is the, all, like the entire universe held together by Jesus, but the church itself is held together by Jesus. And that's why we're here. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you smell like, what you talk like, where you come from. You are here because of the love of God. And that means that we are to love one another. Though we have differences, though people get on each other's nerves, though you have problems with each other, we learn how to forgive because God has shown us forgiveness. But isn't it true that the church is often seen as the most judgmental people? How does that happen? 
Aren't we supposed to, supposed to be this new way of being human, this new way of showing forgiveness, showing grace to other people, sharing the message of reconciliation, and yet we're always nitpicking what everybody else does? Or we're looking at every other person when they do wrong and say, well, maybe I can do that too because they're doing it. But God set us free to say, now you don't have to listen to the old rules. It's not about like looking at like, what should I do? What should I not do? It's about this new law that I'm giving to you called love. And what's so new about it is the way I have demonstrated it. And that's by laying down my life for you and you also should do for everybody else. That's what Jesus is saying. He's like, forget, like, don't memorize 600 commandments. I'm not telling you to do that anymore. I'm saying two things. Love God. Love people. Go do it. If you want to know how to forgive, look how I have forgiven you of your sins. And that motivates you to say, like, wow, I'm a sinful, terrible person, and yet God still loves me. And so I ought to also love other people. It's a new way to see reality itself. What I love about this is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God is not only the creator, but he's the one who brings it back together. When we mess it up, when we brought sin into the world, when we've brought wrongdoing, when we've hurt other people, Jesus is the one who initiates the reconciliation process to say, I want to renew, I want to renew not just your life, but all of creation itself. Restore it to its original order so that you and I can create this new type of, uh, new type of way of being human. If you, had a, if you had something that you bought from a company, if you bought an expensive camera, and you broke it, you send it back to the manufacturer so that they can fix it. In the same way, when we've broken the art that God has made, we are to bring it back to him so that he can fix us. You don't fix yourself. You don't try to take it on yourself. This is a project beyond what you can do. It's not about fixing your camera. It's about sending it back to the manufacturer and saying, God, I need you to fix me. So in conclusion, I'm gonna leave you with this one thought that I thought was really profound. I'm not sure what to do with yet, but I'm gonna share with you and you tell me what you think. Everyone pay attention. So I was on the phone with a youth pastor yesterday talking about youth ministry. I think it's a healthy thing to always talk to different people that are like doing different ministry or maybe just older wiser people, even though he's the same age as me, and just see like what God is doing in other churches, other lives, and just compare and say like, how can I do what I'm doing right now better than what I'm doing? Does that make sense? So I'm a youth pastor. I want to do like, I want to be the best youth pastor I can be for you guys. I want to be there for you guys. I want to like sit down, like know how to handle situations and show you Jesus. So that being the case, I was talking to him about like, I feel like one of the biggest problems about high school ministry is what do you do after high school? And no matter how many youth pastors I talk to, they're all just like, yeah, we don't do anything for kids in college. Just like they go away to school and we hope that they come back to church and maybe they do, maybe they, maybe, maybe they don't. So what do you do for those people? I'm constantly thinking, do I write letters? Do I send care packages? How can I reach all those people that go away to school for four years? And this is what he said to me. He said, I actually don't do anything and this is why. He said, I think most of youth ministry gets it wrong when we make it about being preventative rather than restorative. So he says that many youth ministers get it wrong by making ministry about preventing people from sinning rather than restoring people when they have sinned. He said, think about this. Jesus didn't say, 
if one day your right hand will cause you to sin, you should chop it off. So as a preventative measure, he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, then you should cut it off. Like as a, you know, that's not like actually chopping off your arm. But what he's saying is do whatever it takes, right? And so in the same way, how many of us are harping on the better not sin, better do what you can, like to stay away from the enemy and don't get sucked in. At the same time, maybe what we should be emphasizing is how much God loves us. And no matter how far you run, just like the prodigal son, right? He knew that when he was with the pigs and he was eating there, he's like, man, I could be in the father's house. How good it was to be in the father's house. And the father was ready to receive him. He went, went out running to go receive his son who had been lost. So I hope for you too that you realize that like this is the testing ground. You leave and you will see whether or not your faith is genuine when it's tested. When you're out and there's no like parents around, when there's no youth ministers around, no youth leaders, like who will you really be? Are you going to serve the Lord? Are you going to follow your own desires? And I hope that you follow the Lord and take advantage of those four years. I think there's a balance there. But I also want you to know that no matter what you do, you can always come back. You have our numbers. We love you. And we hope that you also feel that grace. You don't have to feel that shame that God forgives us of every and all sin. Let's pray.